This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on Us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of forty-five dollars equivalent to fifteen dollars per month. Unlimited over forty gigabytes per month, face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty p. Active mint customers by five thirty-one twenty-four. Get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. You, Nicole, have been described as a former lawyer who became addicted to drugs, got involved in the trafficking of drugs, got arrested, imprisoned. Is that a true reflection of Nicole or would you describe yourself differently? Nicole Obrigovich. Canadian lawyer turned drug addict and drug trafficker. Caught imprisoned and now in recovery and had multiple second chances included coming back from near death. I did my first drug run with my dad to the States when I was eight years old. And my mom didn't even know what was going on. We went down to Disneyland and Tijuana and uh, yeah, he was picking up. Hold on, you're, you, with, you were attacked in your hotel room with a golf club and a hammer and survived that attack? So someone kicked my hotel door in and beat me over the head with a golf club. It was actually my husband's old supplier that was involved in that. And he paid someone that I was working with to have me killed. I got approached by a biker gang and I started selling drugs for them. And that's when it went from selling drugs on the corner to large quantities. I basically ended up selling probably between thirty and $50,000 worth of meth a day. Whoa. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. Um, I At one point, I was working for a biker gang, and I was working for a street gang, and it, it was just so funny to me quite often because I'm like, I'm a little white girl, middle-aged white girl from a town of 500 who grew up riding horses and figure skating, and I was a lawyer, and now I'm selling large quantities of drugs. Welcome to the Second Chance Podcast. I'm Raphael Rowe, your host. This show centers around the question of who deserves a second chance, who has the power to grant it, 
and what it means. Our guests come from diverse backgrounds and experiences, including those who have received second chances and those who some might feel are undeserving. We'll also be looking at how a person's journey can lead them to a second chance. Nicole's once promising career as a lawyer was eclipsed by her drug addiction, which led her down a dark path. As a result, she engaged in dishonest billing practices, took money from clients, and even showed up to court under the influence of drugs. Consequently, she was disbarred by the Law Society of British Columbia, and her life spiralled out of control. She started dealing crystal meth and found herself entrenched in dangerous situations, including surviving a brutal attack on her life. She even worked for Canada's notorious and most feared biker gang, known as the Fallen Saints Motorcycle Club. An operation to bring the gang down led to her eventual conviction for drug trafficking and sentence to three years in prison. Despite the hardships, Nicole sought help for her addiction and began the process of rebuilding her life. Today she serves as the Executive Director of the Elizabeth Fry Society of Saskatchewan, providing hope and encouragement to the formerly incarcerated and individuals struggling with addiction. Her journey is testament to the power of perseverance and hard work in overcoming adversity and achieving new goals. So, um, just so that I I can set the scene here, you're in Canada at the moment, is that right? I am. I'm in um, Saskatchewan, actually, which is where I grew up. Just moved back here for work. It's also where I got arrested. So, very interesting story about how I ended up back here. I didn't think I would ever live here again. Oh, really? Because of your experience. But, you know, you don't share that with me now because we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Thank you so much, Nicole. Now, just so that I'm pronouncing your surname right, you give it to me first. Obregovic. Obregovic. Okay, that's an easy one. Yeah. I wanted to, to speak to you because um, we've had some interchanges, interaction on social media. Um, I've seen little bits and pieces about your your backstory and your quite quite, you know, uh, an advocate for, for different types of changes. But I wanted to start this like I do most of my podcasts, which is, you know, based on what I've seen on social media, what I've read in the lead up to this interview, you, Nicole, have been described as a former lawyer who became addicted to drugs, got involved in the trafficking of drugs, got arrested, imprisoned, and overcame all those adversities to become an advocate. Now, that's what I've read. That's how I'm describing the beginning of this interview. Is that a true reflection of Nicole, or would you describe yourself differently? No, that's that's an absolute um, true description of Nicole. <laughs> yeah. Is it? And is that how you would describe yourself? Um. <sighs> I often um, just describe myself as somebody in recovery who is a social justice advocate. 
Um, I'm fairly transparent about my story, uh, regardless whether I'm at work meeting with uh, stakeholders in the organization that I work for, or whether I'm at an NA meeting, or whether I'm just meeting somebody socially. I have this thing, I just really like to talk about what's happened for me and why people should care about that. And it's it's not so much about uh, me personally, it's about changes that I want to see in society. Uh, Canada has a lot of problems around uh, homelessness and drug addiction and um, criminalization of people that are just trying to survive in society. And I kind of feel like this whole full circle journey that I've taken has given me an opportunity to talk about that with people that might not be open to that conversation. Uh, I come from a place of privilege in a lot of ways. I'm a Caucasian woman. There's a lot of racism in Canada against Indigenous people. And people will listen to me. So I'll talk about it. <laughs> and I suppose the, the the interesting thing, and it always is when you are in different countries and people, their vision of a country like Canada is not depicted in the media in the same way as you experience. But before we go into that detail, to, to become the advocate that you are today, and even though you say you, you, you're coming from a slightly privileged position, where did it all start? Are you a, a born and bred Canadian? And what was your life like when you was growing up? You know, just set that scene for us. For sure. So um, I, I, am, I was born in Canada. Um, I'm second generation Russian on my dad's side. Um, my mom's side, I'm eighth generation. So um, my mom's family um, is a settler family. They've been here for a really long time. Um, we're very fortunate to um, have been allowed to settle on this land. And um, my grandparents had very close relationships with the Indigenous people in the area that uh, they were living in at the time. Well, which still some of my family live in. Um, I grew up um, in a rural area, like 500 people. And my family um, were really work hard, play hard kind of people. And the province that I live in, Saskatchewan, kind of has a drinking culture. Everybody drinks. That's just what you do. Uh, it's not uncommon that someone will drink pr pretty much every day. And I grew up around that sort of um, environment. And it, like I said, it was it, there's a culture here. It's, it's not surprising at all. Um, so that's how I learned to cope when I was growing up. If you're upset about something, you get loaded. If you um, are happy about something, you get loaded. Um, you're mad about something, you get loaded. So that, that that was just the environment that I grew up in. And I think that that was pretty common. So there's not, um, unfortunately, a lot of emotional intelligence that's attached to that. Uh, my parents, my mom had me when she was a month over 18. And um, my dad came from a really big, um, like I said, Russian family that absolutely didn't have any emotional intelligence. And there was a lot of um, intergenerational trauma in my dad's family. His dad was uh, Jewish. He was a self-loather. He wouldn't even admit that he was Jewish. He came to North America and pretended that he was Orthodox. And uh, so there was a lot of really negative things going on in that family. And uh, my uh, parents broke up really early and I ended up 
uh, growing up with my great grandparents, which was an absolutely amazing um, experience. And I was very fortunate to have them, but I still like really want to be around my dad a lot. And my dad uh, not only was a severe alcoholic, he was also a drug addict and he moved to the coast of Canada to Vancouver and started um, dealing drugs with his brother. And so I was introduced to drugs and drug dealing at a very young age, even though my mom's family, very straight, a bunch of ranchers, you know, they all own their own businesses. My dad's family, I just called them the Russian hillbillies because they were always up to something. And uh, I did my first drug run with my dad to the States when I was eight years old. And my mom didn't even know what was going on. We went down to Disneyland and Tijuana and uh, yeah, he was picking up. And you know, when I was 15, um, started using with my dad. I drank with my mom too and started using with my dad. So I was introduced to drugs really early. And um, I lived out on the coast with him for a period of time and uh, things were not good. And uh, he was an IV drug user. And so I decided that I should go back to Saskatchewan uh, where my mom's family was and came back and had a baby and then sort of pulled my together. I guess I probably can't say that. Pulled my stuff together. (laughs) I uh, went to university and I ended up getting a sociology degree. And at the same time, I was working for a youth center in an outreach program, uh, basically working with uh, street youth or youth at risk of becoming criminalized and uh, youth um, that were involved in the sex trade. And um, after I got my sociology degree, I decided that um, there wasn't a lot of power in being a social worker. So I thought, maybe you should be a lawyer. So I applied to law school and I got in and um, I got my law degree. And um, right before I got um, accepted to law school, I ended up getting married to somebody very much like my father. It's funny how that works. And it sounds really sort of cliche, but I I did. I I married my father and um, he had a very severe addiction to alcohol and drugs. And it didn't even phase me because that's how I grew up. That's what my dad was like. Um, You know, other members of my family drank a lot. It just didn't really seem like a big deal to me. And um, I was also drinking. I would drink pretty much every weekend. And it, it just, it wasn't uncommon. And most of my friends did the same thing. And even the people that I was in law school with, same thing. And so, you know, I was desensitized to the fact that it might be a problem, right? And, and was it, um, was it when, just just going back to the first drugs you were taking when you were with your dad, was it just recreational? Not that that's acceptable or the right thing for anybody listening, but I'm just right. saying, was it recreational? Because you said your dad was, you know, injecting drugs. And what type of drugs were you introduced to by your father when you were such a young age? And And I'm really curious about this drug run that you made when you were eight years old. I, I imagine you were just a passenger with your dad, or was it more cynical than that? No, he he was kind of slick about it because him and my mom weren't together. And um, he decided that he was going to take us to Disneyland. But we we did the side trip to Tijuana. (laughs) And um, I didn't know till I was older what was going on. But he told me, you know, he was down there to pick up cocaine. I don't remember much of it. I remember getting to go to Disneyland for two days and then going to Tijuana and not to a nice part of Tijuana. 
And then uh, him and my mom fighting on the way back. Like I said, they weren't together. So it was sort of a weird situation. I originally was introduced to uh, marijuana by my dad when I was like, and I actually I think it was with my mom the first time I smoked weed. I was like 14. And then, um, but drugs were never her thing. And um, he, when I was 16, went out to BC to hang out with him for the summer. And we were smoking weed every day, but um, also doing cocaine. So, and at that point, he wasn't injecting yet. He was just snorting it and um, he was drinking a lot. And that's just, you know, it was, but when I, when I went back out there, when I was older, he was injecting. And before um, you went out there, you got your life back on track. So something pushed you in the right direction to the point that you went to university. And that in itself is a big decision, especially when you've been introduced to a little bit of drugs and, and, and distractions as, as you were. But you found yourself in university where you did the sociology and then you went on to do a law degree. Correct. Correct. I kind of always wanted to be a lawyer. You know, um, I grew up, uh, you know, it's funny because I think that this has been sort of a current through my whole life. Any sort of injustice just has always pissed me off. And, you know, when I started working for that youth center in Saskatoon, um, you know, the fact that there are so many people in society that are marginalized and that don't have the same life chances, even at that point, like it, it really bothered me. So that's, I decided that I wanted to go to law school because originally what I wanted to do was I wanted to do youth justice because, I, you know, I was working at a youth center and that's who I was involved with. Um, and then when I was in law school, I kind of had a little bit of a shift when I was there and I was more interested in doing Indigenous justice and um, constitutional law, but um, that's not what happened either. <laughs> Well, your, your trajectory changed, but you obviously got yeah. through law school, got your degree, and then did you start to put your skills into practice? Did you work for a law firm? Were you, you know, doing the nine to five? Um, and, and it's obviously testimony to how smart you are, Nicole, as an individual who did a sociology, did a degree in law, had dabbled, but was still on track to do what you wanted to do. Yeah. Um, like I mentioned, right before law school, I ended up uh, getting married to somebody that I had known since high school, very much like my father. Um, what I didn't mention was he was also a drug dealer. <laughs> so um, I ended up running into him uh, right before I started law school. He was in Saskatchewan from Vancouver, where he was living, and he was bringing large uh, shipments of weed into Saskatoon. And I, um, we were hanging out and he was like, you know, I want to, I want to be with you. And I, and I said, I cannot be with a drug dealer. I'm trying to go to law school. You know, if you will quit dealing drugs and, um, you know, get your, your stuff together, then, then we can talk about it. So we had this historic relationship. We know known each other for like 12 years. And, um, like I said, I'm a little desensitized to what's going on and, I end up marrying him. Like we start dating in January. We get up married in August. Um, happens really fast. Um, he tries to quit dealing drugs for, I don't know, a very short period of time, but it became apparent uh, rather quickly that that's the only thing he knew how to do. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I let him like I, 
you know, I, we needed money. Uh, I was on student loans and it was only weed and it didn't really seem like a big deal, but you know, some pretty messed up things happened during that period of time as well. And he would disappear for weeks at a time and he would get loaded and spend all our money and he was cheating on me. And, and so right from the first, I think pretty much in the first year, those things were happening. And I came from a family where you stay married. Like my grandparents, my great grandparents, they were married for 76 years, you know, no matter what happened, that's what you did. And my grandparents were married for like over 60 years. And I was in love with this guy. Like I really was. And um, I wanted it to work out. And um, second year of law school, like I had a four-year-old when we got married and second year of law school, I had a baby with him and um, I managed to make it through law school, really good marks, um, got a job with with um, legal aid in Vancouver. We moved to Vancouver. Um, I ended up having another baby. Um, and all, all the while, there's a lot of drinking, you know, a lot of drinking um, and some using. Um, at that point, I was using cocaine still. Um, I, and, you know, I, I aligned myself with lawyers that were also using cocaine. And then he got in a car accident and he got a prescription for Oxycontin. And um, I was miserable, right? I was the only one working. Um, he was a drug dealer, but he was a shitty drug dealer and um, it, it was not good. And um, after he got in that car accident, things shifted. He got addicted, addicted to Oxycontin and... Um, I couldn't. And for those who don't know what OxyContin is, just explain what yeah. that is. OxyContin is a painkiller that um, was really popular in North America. There's documentaries made about it. There's shows on Netflix about it. It basically became the currency uh, for a lot of drug addicts in North America. People could buy other drugs with it. People could pay for things with it. It basically fueled the opiate um, crisis that we have in North America right now. People uh, were, so many people were on it. I think it was even worse in the States, but it was really bad in Canada as well. And then when doctors finally figured out that it was causing so much havoc, they changed the formula for it. And um, people that were on Oxycontin that got cut off just started doing heroin. And um, that's what happened with us. He got an Oxycontin addiction. His doctor was giving us, like us, because I started doing them too, huge amounts. Like I, I think he was getting sixteen hundred um, every couple weeks, and then he had back surgery, so they were giving him even more. And at first, we were trading them for coke, and um, then I didn't even want to do coke anymore. And and uh, the whole time, I'm trying to practice law. And he's getting more and more abusive every day. At first it was, um, you know, just emotional abuse and um, cheating and that sort of thing. But uh, the farther the addiction proceeded, um, the worse things got. Uh, it became physical really quickly. And I uh, was struggling at work. Um, having some problems at work because I was in a fee splitting agreement. At that point, I was practicing immigration law and I was in a fee splitting agreement with my firm, which meant um, I was bringing my own clients in and um, we were splitting the uh, fees 50-50. And so, you know, the farther I got into my addiction, the less billing I was doing. And 
Then I started taking cash under the table. Um, for my clients. And you can't do that. Um, as a lawyer, you have two accounts. You have a trust account and you have a general account. And um, when you do work for somebody, you transfer the money out of trust into general, and then you bill and you get paid. But when you're a drug addict, you need to get your drugs as fast as possible. It's like A to B. You don't want to be screwing around doing all these other things. And um, so I started taking cash from some of my clients and basically cutting my firm out. And um, can, can I, I just ask, Nicole, yeah. during this this period where you were going on this rocky ride, was it not obvious to your clients, to your uh, the company you were working for uh, and other people? I know you said you aligned yourself with other lawyers who were taking coke as well. But it sounds to me that at that point where you were coming desperate to take cash under the table, running higher risk now, was it not obvious to people? how deep you had fallen into your addiction and and other activities you know i i gotta i've got to um praise you for even asking me that you are the first person that has ever asked me that <laughs> good well then i'll be the first one to give people your answer yeah like it, it's crazy to me that um people never ask me that because like it, it was insane. You know, I, I was at, at one point like doing lines before court and I was a litigator. So I was in court. It, it wasn't like I was just sitting around my office all the time. Um, I was out in public and there were a couple periods of time where um, I wouldn't even go into work for like two weeks and they wouldn't even like call me or ask me where I was. Um, I was coming in with black eyes Nobody was asking me what was going on. Uh, it was kind of messed up because I really felt like I didn't have anybody that I could talk to. And first of all, being a female in the legal profession, you know, we've made a lot of advances in society, but it's still really hard as a woman. You have to fight really hard uh, just to get the recognition. Uh, judges still make slick comments about your appearance and um, that sort of thing. Uh, they talk down to you. Um, it's, you know, it's still, it's still a thing. And so, um, you know, I had to work extra hard as a female lawyer and, you know, the amount of stigma that is attached to uh, alcoholism and abuse and drug addiction, I couldn't talk to anybody about it. At one point, I did try to reach out to one of the partners in my firm and I'm like, listen, I'm struggling. I need some help. And um, I basically just sort of got sloughed off. Like they weren't interested in hearing what was happening. And um, even, you know, the assistant in the office, she didn't want to know what was going on. Nobody wanted to know. It was like, basically, everybody was looking away. They didn't want to hear what was going on. And I, and I didn't feel like I could tell my family. Um, my family hated my husband. And um, I, I was by myself in this, like, really, I, I did talk to my cousin about it a little bit, but she was grossed out by the situation too. People get weird about stuff like that. So yeah, I was going to court loaded and I thought it was okay because I was winning. You know, I have published decisions in the federal court of Canada where I was high. <laughs> so, you know, super high functioning, but I grew up like that, right? 
high functioning alcoholics that, you know, they still have really nice houses. They're driving super nice vehicles. You know, they own their own businesses, but they're not alcoholics because they don't live behind a dumpster or they're not on the street or, you know, whatever. And I think for me, and I was talking about this with my brother the other day, for me, since I grew up that way and, you know, I was able to cope like that most of my entire life, it was fine until the point where that relationship started getting physically abusive. I wasn't able to cope anymore at the level that I was used to coping. And so the weekend binges went from, you know, Friday, Saturday to Thursday, Friday, Saturday to Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, because I had to level up with my coping. I couldn't cope with just booze or, you know, recreational drugs, which lots of people can do recreational drugs and good for them. But because of the trauma of that relationship, it knocked me right off. Like I had to, I, I guess, escalate my drug use just to try to cope. And that's not what was happening. I was not coping at all. I ended up um, leaving the firm that I was working for because um, I basically decided, you know, since I'm in a fee splitting agreement, maybe if I get a salary job, I'll be better. Things will be better financially. We'll be more stable. And, and I'm looking after at this point, basically a guy with a back injury and three kids trying to run my own law practice, try to pay all the bills in Vancouver, which is like the most expensive city in Canada. And um, I'm like, like, okay, well, maybe, maybe I should just get a job. So I become a prosecutor. <laughs> I get a job as a prosecutor. Not good. I just keep using, you know, and I think it was maybe four months in, um, my shady billing practices caught up to me. One of the partners from the firm figured out that, um, I hadn't been reporting all of my income and they reported me to the law society. So I had to resign as a prosecutor and um, I was sanctioned by the Law Society. I think in the end there was like five different complaints about um, billing. And, and the ironic thing is I was sloppy about it because it was high. It was only like $7,000. It wasn't even like a bunch of money. And I was just such a mess when the hearing came up and my grandpa had just passed away, the one that um, I grew up with. And I went to the first part of my hearing and admitted everything I did. Then I didn't go back. I didn't go back to the sentencing part of my hearing. Um, I was like, I don't want to be a lawyer anyways. I don't want to be scrutinized. Um, who gives a shit? You know, I can do something else. Um, basically try to talk myself out of all the work that I had put in and everything because I didn't want to deal with my addiction yet. And I got disbarred. And in the judgment, it actually says that if I would have shown up and um, told them what was going on, that I would have only been um, suspended for six weeks. Which would have given you enough time or some time to think about what you wanted to do next. <laughs> no, I was too high. Tell me about how you ended up getting involved in the trafficking of drugs. So um, at that point, um, like I was, I was really sort of upset about it. You know, I tried to talk myself into thinking that it wasn't a big deal, but it was a big deal. And um, we were already sort of dabbling. 
in dealing a little bit because he got caught, cut off his Oxycontin. And so he knew, and he also knew a bunch of drug dealers from before, right? Um, from when he was bringing weed back and forth between Saskatchewan and BC. And um, so we were, we were hustling a little bit um, just to basically get well. Uh, when you are on opiates, you get physically addicted. And if you don't have those drugs, you are sick. Like you have the flu, like you like cannot get out of bed. And it was also around that point in time. So he was dealing a little bit, but just basically to get our substances. And, um, it was around that period of time that, um, his parents came in and took my kids, uh, I was, I was such a mess. I could, like, I couldn't even parent anymore. And, um, after the kids went, that was it. Like I was done. And, um, I tried to commit suicide and, uh, there was like some really low bottom addict behaviors. Like we were stealing catalytic converters from vehicles and palm trees and grocery scams and home Depot scams. And like we were, we were using heroin, like it was as bad as it could get. And, um, I was like, okay, this is insane. Like I, less than a year ago, I was a lawyer and now this is what's happening for me. And, um, when I got out of the hospital, when I tried to commit suicide, I like, I tried to clean up, but it, it just wasn't happening. Right. And it wasn't only because of me. It was, was it a serious attempt to take your life or was it a cry for help? Because you, I mean, we haven't talked about your kids. That's for you to decide. Yeah. I'm sure they're when they were young, there are a number of times where I wanted to interject and sort of say, well, where were your kids at this point? But I think you you kind of answered that when you said it got to the point where your husband's parents had to come and take the kids because you'd hit yeah. such rock bottom. Yeah. And then you end up trying to take your own life. Was that because you were desperately seeking help or was it a serious attempt to to, to remove yourself from this world? I think I really wanted to die. I had never thought about suicide before in my whole entire life. And I was so desperately unhappy that, and I, I had no way to leave the marriage. I had no money. I had no options. Like there, there was no way that I could make the changes that I needed to make at that point. And, you know, I went to detox and I still, I couldn't even get into treatment. And, um, when I finally did get into treatment, I got kicked out because I was using, because, you know, I, I'm with somebody who's in active use too. And so I had to get away from that situation for it to work. And, um, I was up on a four day bender and I hadn't slept and, um, I tried to kill myself. I took all my antidepressants. And like I said, it was, it was nothing that I had ever thought about before, but pretty much from that point on, like I had a death wish, like I wanted to die. Literally I wanted to die. And so, um, something in me though, wanted me to survive. And, when all this craziness was going on and my kids are at my in-laws and, and I'm like, I need to go back to Saskatchewan and clean up because it's not going to happen here. I know too many people and um, there's no heroin in Saskatchewan and uh, because it's right in the middle of the country and it's rural and, you know, people don't really do heroin there. And so geographical cure. 
So I go back to Saskatchewan and he goes with me. And um, I think we were only in Saskatchewan for a very short period of time when somebody approached us about bringing methamphetamine into the city. And that wasn't really a thing in in that area at that time either. And this person that asked him to do it was someone that he used to deal large amounts of marijuana with. And this guy was so stunned that he just gave him like, $30,000 and was like, go buy a bunch of meth in Vancouver. So we started bringing large amounts of methamphetamine into the city. And even though that was not my drug of choice or something that I had ever done before, because I'm a drug addict, um, I then started doing methamphetamine and I still had an opiate addiction. And, um, Things went sideways really fast uh, because it doesn't matter how much money you have or how many drugs you have. You know, if you're that messed up, you you're it's not manageable. You can't your life is not manageable. And um, so basically he ended up like screwing all that up and ended up with no money. And we got evicted from where we were living. And that was finally the impetus for me to leave. I finally had an opportunity to leave him. And at that point it was really bad. Like I I was getting my ass handed to me quite often and, and I would fight back and the cops would show up and like everybody knew, including the police knew what was going on. And, and I left him and, um, because, uh, I needed drugs. I started survival dealing on my own and, um, I took his, I took his supplier and I took all the the people that were buying drugs from us and I started selling drugs and um, I was good at it. Uh, so what, what sort of quantity of drugs was you selling? And, and, and you know, I'm just for, for those that are listening, I'm trying to conjure up this picture of Nicole. No, no, I, I can't imagine you being on a street corner handing out packets of drugs to individuals who were giving you, you know, dollars. Is that what it was like? Or was it you were distributing a large quantity for other street dealers? I mean, give us an idea. So at the very beginning, when I first left him, um, I absolutely was standing on a corner selling, like breaking up, breaking up grounds, like selling points. Because, yeah, at that point, it was survival dealing. And, uh, then I sort of stepped it up a little bit and I got involved with some other people at a higher level. And then there was an attempt made on my life. Some people owed me money and instead of wanting to, instead of paying me, they tried to have me murdered. So someone kicked my hotel door in and beat me over the head with a golf club and a hammer was two guys. And it was actually, <laughs> it was actually my husband's old supplier that was involved in that. And he paid someone that I was working with to have me killed. And um, Hold on, you're, you, with, you were attacked in your hotel room yeah. with a golf club and a hammer yeah. and survived that attack? Yeah. Um, I had 33 staples in my head. I was in the hospital for a month. The doctor told me that if I was hit any differently, that I would, I would absolutely be dead. Like my, my skull didn't shatter. A big chunk of it broke out. And so I was in the hospital for a month and um, I still used every day. 
every day I was in the hospital, I was using. Um, they put a security guard by my door because I kept trying to leave. And um, when I got out, because I wouldn't tell the police who did it, and I, I knew who did it, um, but I was at that point so entrenched in the lifestyle and still so absolutely addicted uh, that uh, I just kept going, right? I was homeless for a little while, got somewhere to live. And then because I wouldn't tell the police and because I knew everybody that was involved in that lifestyle and all the meth dealers and everything like that, I got approached by a biker gang and I started selling drugs for them. And that's when it went from selling drugs on the corner to large quantities. And um, I basically ended up selling probably between thirty and fifty thousand dollars worth of math a day. Whoa. Yeah, it, w- it was pretty crazy. Um, I at one point I was working for a biker gang and I was working for a street gang, and it was just so funny to me quite often because I'm like, I'm a little white girl, middle aged white girl from a town of five hundred who grew up riding horses and figure skating, and I was a lawyer, and now. I'm selling large quantities of drugs. Remember. But given that you were so addicted and given that you were attracting a lot of attention to the point where you were attacked in a hotel, the police were obviously aware that you were caught up. Why did they trust this little white girl who came from an affluent background? I'm not I'm not really sure how that all happened like it did. Um, I think that the fact that I wasn't, talking to the police and, and like, it, it was a small community. Everybody sort of knew everybody. And, um, the biker gang that I, I ended up selling for, they weren't really involved in the meth trade too much at the beginning. And so they needed somebody that was an in, they needed somebody who knew everybody. And, and I did, and it was clear that I was solid enough that I wouldn't talk to the police, even though there was an attempt made on my life. And even though I was a drug addict and even though um, I obviously was doing some really low bottom drug addict things, I also was really smart. Even though I had my head caved in, I was really smart and pretty savvy about things and connections. And, um, you know, those are things you learn along the way as, you know, as a lawyer, um, just in life. Right. And, So I've always been really good at making those connections and, um, it, it worked for dealing drugs too. And so, um, I was really successful at it. Uh, but what happened in the very end, which saved my freaking life. And I'm absolutely sure of that because I would put myself in more and more dangerous situations all the time. Like, and I was mouthy, like I, you know, was like kicking, um, kicking soldiers from street gangs in the ass. Um, I was like talking shit all the time. I like, I was a nightmare and like also a little bit violent. I would punch people in the face. Like it it was crazy. I'm so lucky I'm not dead. Um, because I was, I was a terrible, terrible person. And, um, some of the things that happened during that time period just sort of floor me. Like it doesn't resonate with me. But what did happen in the end was the um, one of the uh, bikers that I was selling for ended up flipping himself. 
So the police uh, got him on a murder conspiracy charge and they convinced him to uh, put cameras and audio in the clubhouse. And so basically they had months and months of audio and video of people coming and buying drugs from him, me being one of them. Mm-hmm. So I think that like that went on for a couple months and nobody knew what was going on. And um, it was really weird. One night I was out and I, I had a bunch of money on me and not a lot of drugs. Cause I was just about to go see him to, to reload and I came out of my back door of my house and there was literally like nine cops standing there. And they were like, oh, Ms. Obrigovich, we've been looking for you. And I was like, for what? And at, at that point, I had other like stupid charges like break and enter and, you know, um, theft under 5,000 and that, that like just pissy stuff. Right. And so they took me down to the police station and I had a dope hider in my purse. Like it was a big uh, hairspray can and uh, it was in my purse and um, with I think about $5,000 or something like that all in elastics and they managed to find the drugs and I was sitting in the room and I could hear them cheering and I was just like so done and I came out and they were like did you want to tell us who sold you all the methamphetamine? And I was like, no, I don't want to tell you anything. <laughs> and um, because I didn't really have a criminal record, they let me out on bail. At that point, I still didn't really know what was going on with the guy that I was buying from, but he decided that he wasn't really going to sell drugs anymore. And so I started buying off of somebody else. And this went on for another six months. I was on a curfew. I had um, someone living with me that um, I would just get her to run for me. She ended up going missing. She's still missing to this day. The police invested, investigated me. Uh, they thought that I had something to do with it, and, 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 and I didn't. Uh, they dug up my yard looking for her. Um, I was in prison at that point. And um, when they finally came and got me that last time, I was ready. Like, I was ready to go. I was just so over it because... I knew that I was probably next, you know, it, it wasn't. Are you saying that, that, that you were living with a, another female who was possibly murdered? You become a suspect in that case? Yeah, yeah. And you were now fearing that you yourself might have been another attempt on your life? And this was all part of you being caught up in this drug gang dealing, trafficking? Correct, correct. Like I... I wasn't involved with nice people. You know, the drug trade, even when it was just weed at the beginning, there was crazy things going on even around that. But when you throw hard drugs into the mix, there, you know, that lifestyle is, um, it's violent. It's violent and people do terrible, terrible things to each other. And, um, it, you know, it's money and it's guns and it's drugs and, um, and I'm five foot one with a big mouth. And um, a lot of really bad things happened to me during that period of time. And even though um, I was able to make things work for myself, um, like I, I was sexually assaulted a couple of times. I was robbed several times. Um, and I was like, I had a driver, but I was almost always by myself. When I reflect, like, I don't even know how I'm here. And especially... You know, um, how did you end up in prison, Nicole? 
that that was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because um I, like i said i was ready to go so the police the police showed up and i was like okay let's do this <laughs> you know like i was actually um i had been packing because i was going to move i'm like i'm going to move back to bc i i wasn't going anywhere like let's be honest i was i was too messed up to really do anything and um so when the police was this was this the arrest where you'd been um granted bail or was this a separate arrest another case okay so I, I've been granted bail and then, oh, and there's this, this other piece that I didn't talk about because I think it's, it's probably beyond, um, how my addiction affected my children, uh, which was the absolute worst part of all of this. I mean, I was lucky my, my in-laws, uh, were really good people. Uh, but my oldest daughter, she was living with me till she was 17 years old, going through some of this with me. And, um, you know, so she saw some really horrible things as well. And so did the little ones and they, they remember things. Right. But I also got pregnant when I was dealing. And so, um, I got released on bail the first time and then I got let back out and, um, I had a boyfriend that I was dating during that period of time for like three years and he was in and out of jail all the time. And I ended up pregnant and, um, I didn't even know because I was so high and because, um, I was 46 and it didn't even occur to me because I didn't even get my period anymore, you know? And, um, I found out when I was six and a half months pregnant that I was pregnant. And so I got arrested the first time, got let out on bail, um, got arrested again on a condition check. Um, I had 13 cell phones. I wasn't even supposed to have one. So they breached me. And at that point I was like seven and a half months pregnant. And, um, when I was inside, I lost that baby. I was eight months pregnant when I lost the baby, probably also a good thing. Um, it was very traumatizing. Um, I was having, uh, contractions and they wouldn't take me to the hospital. And then, uh, two days later when they did an ultrasound, the baby was dead. And then I had to give birth to a dead baby for two days with guards watching me and, um, really traumatizing. And I had nobody, like I had alienated myself from my family. I hadn't talked to my mom in years. I hadn't talked to my kids in years. And it was one of the most humiliating experiences that I've ever been through in my whole entire life. And, um, like, I think that that's, that's one part of my story that I'm still kind of dealing with, but they let me out again because they were like, Oh, you know, they, I think they felt bad that my baby was dead. And, uh, so I got let out again and I was supposed to go to treatment, but I couldn't get into treatment. So I was just using again and just dealing. And, um, you know, this is the thing though. When you get let out of a provincial institution in Canada, you don't have any support. They release you to the street. What else are you going to do? Like you, you have to, you've got to survive whether, you know, even if I wasn't on drugs, I would still need to get money for food. I would still need to get money for rent, but I, I have a drug addiction. Like I have no supports and I have a drug addiction. And so what do you do? You deal drugs. So that, I mean, I just went right back to it. And so that third arrest, that, that was for the original arrest. And then, um, that was it. And, and I was ready. Like I, I was ready to go in. I was over it. I didn't want to be a drug dealer anymore. I didn't want to be involved in that lifestyle anymore, but I like, it didn't have a choice. Like I couldn't get out of it. Um, I what wasn't was your prison in sentence. What was your prison sentence in the end? 
I got three and a half years. That's a long sentence. Which isn't that bad. Well, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a long sentence. For someone who was leading such a poetic, chaotic lifestyle, um, that was a big disruption. How long did you serve in prison out of that three and a half years? I was really lucky because, A, I didn't go to one of the maxes, the one of the real prisons. I actually got sentenced um, and got sent to a healing lodge, um, which is on the Nekanit Reserve in Saskatchewan. And uh, you have to sign a cultural contract and there's ceremony and sweats and elders and um, no fences. Uh, that opportunity it changed my whole entire life. Um, I basically got out of the vehicle and I was like, this is treatment. I'm going to use this as a way to heal myself and um, use this opportunity to um, change my whole entire life. And um, when I was in there, they sent me to treatment in Calgary. So I got to go to treatment for six weeks. And um, when I got back, I got paroled after nine and a half months. So I didn't serve very much time. And at this point, was you clean? Was you had you beaten the addiction? I don't think I'll ever have beaten the addiction. Um, I was clean. I was happy to be clean. I had no intention to going back to using. What I was carrying though was a whole bunch of guilt and shame. I um, had a lot of shame about what was going on. Like when I was in, I would get on the treadmill and I would cry. Because I was like, you blew up your whole entire life. And I got released um, to a community where I didn't know anybody. Um, I didn't know one person. I started going to NA meetings and I got a sponsor. And um, after a short period of time, I got a job. But I still wasn't being transparent about what I had been through. I wasn't admitting to people that I was in recovery. I wasn't admitting to people that I went to prison. And and it was because I was deeply, deeply ashamed of some of the things that had happened during that time period. And um, I wasn't really quite committed to my program at that point. And um, I'm working minimum wage jobs and I was basically barely existing. And I was on parole and um, the second I got off parole, I relapsed. I mean, I think it, I think it took a month or something like that. But um, that was the game changer. That was the game changer. So um, I was like, when I came off of that relapse, I was like, what is wrong with you? Like, you need to forgive yourself. You need to throw yourself into your program. You not need to start dealing with some of this trauma that you're carrying around. I see other people that have made this work for them. Um, I know that you are actually built for more. You have two university degrees and regardless of what happened, um, those can't be taken away from you. You still are, you know, somewhat intelligent and articulate and you care about society. And I was like living amends. I need to start giving back. So I started volunteering for um, a few organizations in community um, uh, at Salvation Army. And then also at the organization I work for now, I started volunteering for them as well. And, um, threw myself into my program. I got a sponsor who took me through the steps and, um, things started to change for me. And I was, how really, long really... ago was this? 
when you say, I like that moment where you say things started to change for you. Yeah. When was this? At, in what, what year was this? How old were you at the time? Okay, so that was, I got off parole in January of 2018. I relapsed in May of 2018. I came back September 27th, 2018. So, um, that first few months though was was kind of shitty because I was living in my friend's basement and I was nannying her kids and I was like I was actually a really good mom you know and so things sort of started to come back and I was volunteering and I first I got a job as a support worker at a building that supported people in active addiction and people with mental health and I was like oh you know I I wasn't triggered by it. You know, I was around drug use a lot and I wasn't triggered by it. But what it did was remind me of everything that I have been going through. And um, I was working there and then I got a job as a fundraiser for the organization I work for now. Um, it's, it's called Elizabeth Fry Society. And there's actually 24... A British woman. A yeah. British... Yeah, she was a Quaker and she was an yeah, abolitionist. A British advocate for female right, prisoners. Right. Right. And so um, I started working for them and I always kind of had um, an affinity to, for that organization because even in law school, you know, we did projects with them. And then when I was in prison, they came into the prison. And when I was in jail, they came into the jail. And so when I got out and I was um, volunteering for them and then I ended up getting a job with them and I started as a fundraiser and then I uh, was the supportive housing coordinator and then I became the housing manager. So I like I was responsible for, you know, 104 units, like four buildings and, you know, a multi-million dollar budget. And I started kind of feeling myself again. You know, I'm like, I can do this. And I became a regional advocate, which was um, they basically monitor conditions of confinement uh, nationally. That's our national organization is the Canadian Association of Elizabeth Fry. And that's when I first started talking to you during COVID, when we were having all those issues around um, what was happening with people that are in, in institutions during COVID. So I worked for Elizabeth Fry in British Columbia for almost four years. And then I was like, you know what? I, I think I want to be an executive director next. And, and um, by the way, um, at the same time, um, one of my coworkers suggested strongly to me that I um, apply to be reinstated as a lawyer again. And so I put a reinstatement application in and um, I ended up getting an executive director position in Saskatoon where I got arrested, where I had been dealing drugs for years and years and years, um, where I caused all sorts of havoc, where basically I was messing things up and I thought it was an opportunity for me to go and give back to community, the community that I had caused so much problems in. And um, I've been back since February. And um, my organization in Saskatoon, I'm so happy to be here because 
I am able to go into the institutions that I was housed in as an inmate. And um, I'm helping um, the women that, um, you know, I basically walked beside for a really long period of time. And our organization in Saskatchewan is quite a bit smaller than the one in British Columbia that I was working for. But I've been able to take everything that I learned in BC um, in respect to structure and um, bring it to Saskatoon. And I've started doing some really big things here. Uh, I was in the media a lot a couple weeks ago because uh, we have serious issues with overcapacity in the institutions. Uh, there's a huge. When, when can I ask, when were you here whether the Law Society are going to reinstate your position as a, as a lawyer? Are you still waiting or have they already made a decision? No. I Okay, so I put the application in um, a year ago in March, and I hadn't heard anything at all. And in May, I was asked to speak at the British Columbia Provincial Judges Conference in front of 140 judges. And my rule is, if I get asked to speak, I speak. And even though I was absolutely um, beyond anxious. I'm like, how the hell am I going to talk in front of 140 judges? Like, this is crazy to me. But I agreed to do it. And when I was there, um, one of the other judges that knows me from doing um, presentations to the law school, he got up on stage and he said, Nicole didn't mention this because, you know, she's not like that. But I, I want everybody to know that she has a reinstatement application in and that she hasn't heard anything back. And it's been like 14 months. So if you see somebody from the benchers, say something to them. And so I literally had like four or five different judges come up to me after and they're like, you need to talk to this lawyer. So I got in contact with him and um, he agreed to take my case on pro bono. And he has, um, we got a letter from the Law Society and they're willing to hear my case. We're just waiting for a hearing date. Well, good luck with that. And, um, you know, congratulations on your, your, your turning your life around and, you know, doing the stuff and the advocacy work that you're doing. I have a trickier question for you, and it's about second chances, right? Because it sounds like, you know, you've been on a roller coaster and have taken your second, third, fourth, fifth chance, however many chances some people might deem that have been given to you or that you've taken. But the one thing that has been sort of at the forefront of my thinking all the way through your description of your life's journey is, is your children. I'm curious, Nicole, to know whether or not your your children have given you a, a second chance to be their mum. Now I feel like crying a little bit. Absolutely. My mom ended up. Well, that's good. It's good that you're crying. And I'm not going to (laughs) apologize because that for anybody who has any doubt about whether you have emotions or can be triggered by things that are emotional, it's good to know that you can become emotional because the journey you've been on must have toughened you up in many, many ways. So I'm not going to apologize for asking that question that may have triggered the tears that you're showing now for your children. Yeah. I think I mentioned this already, but the the only thing that I would change about my past is the way that it affected my children. My oldest daughter, like I said, she went through so much and um, they saw a lot of the abuse and um, they didn't get what they needed a lot of the time, not only like emotionally, but in respect to being fed properly or the things that they needed for school. And I acknowledge that. And um, when I got to prison, 
Um, I hadn't talked to any of them for like probably about three years at the time. Right. And, um, I started writing letters. Um, I wrote letters to my kids, like, I don't know, probably once a month to begin with, because I wasn't trying to like put myself back in their lap or force myself on them because, you know, I really felt like, um, they deserved some respect after everything that they had been through. And, um, my in-laws, like they didn't really um, trust what I was saying or where I was coming from. And um, I asked them, like, can I call them? Can I just maybe, and I promise I'll call like every Sunday night and um, I'll prove to you, you know, that um, I've changed and the best behavior or the best apologies change behavior. And um, so I just kept writing and kept writing and I finally got something back from my father-in-law and he said, you could call. And, uh, my oldest daughter didn't want anything to do with me. She was not having it. And, um, my son, uh, very quickly started talking to me and, um, it took me a couple months to get my daughter to talk to me that, that, um, my two younger kids, they're, um, now 20 and 23 and they live with my mom in Brandon, uh, or not, not Brandon in, Kamloops. Um, we, my mom and I bought a house together and, um, my, my middle daughter moved in with me when she was 18. And then my son moved in with me when he was 18 and we all lived together in the house and I'm super close with my two younger kids. And, um, we talk about this stuff all the time, very openly. And, um, we're, we're very, very, very close. And, um, when I, uh, uh, got out of prison, my oldest daughter also started talking to me again and, um, we're also close again and she lives in Saskatoon. So, um, I'm in the community where she's living right now. And, um, I talk to her pretty much, you know, every second day. And I talk to those other kids all the time and those relationships have been restored. And, um, I think that the biggest part of that, that has made that possible is that like, I'm accountable, you know, and we've had some really, really hard conversations and, um, my son and my oldest daughter, they, they don't want to rehash it. Like they don't want to talk about it. Um, it does, you know, things come up once in a while and we, we, we do, but they, they don't want to revisit any of it. My middle daughter, she wants to. And um, so sometimes we have some pretty horrible conversations. You know, she's like, do you remember the time? And I don't want to remember the time, but we we do. We talk about those things. And, um, you know, that's that's for her, right? Um, I have to admit, and, and I don't remember a lot of those things, right? But I know I did them. Thank you. Nicole, for, for, for sharing all that you've shared with me. And just one final question. What, what would you say is the, the, the moral of your story? What, what have you learned? What can others learn? I mean, just listening to the journey you went on and the recovery, and I know in an hour, it's never enough to justify the many years that you've just talked about. It's great to know that you're out the other end. Whatever struggles you have now, at least you are back in control of your life and it's not from the sound of it being dictated by drugs or an abusive relationship or the other challenges that you face. It sounds like you have control uh, or mostly control of your own life and, and destiny here on. What would you say is the moral of your story? For me, you know, um, I think that anybody can come back. 
you know, I, I was as, as bad as it can get, like literally as bad as it can get, you know, I've seen miracles happen in recovery and, um, previous to being in recovery, I always joke around about how, um, believing in God is an unfortunate byproduct of being in recovery, but I, I absolutely believe in my creator now, uh, because I've seen miracles happen, you know, um, drug addiction is, it's like hell on earth. It really is. And people lose their families and, um, you know, their parents and their children and, um, people that they love and, um, don't give up on them. People can come back from that and people can heal from that. And, um, you know, it's not just people that you see behind dumpsters or it's not just, um, you know, the worst dregs of society that are criminals and all those sorts of things. That stigma is what keeps people out using, um, you know, that lack of understanding of um, the fact that it could happen to anybody. One incident of trauma in your life, you know, you know, a death or the failure of a marriage or anything like that can, can make anybody go out. It's not, um, it's not like people would have you believe it's not black and white. So, you know, um, I think that, um, anybody can come back from it and, um, just having that faith and having that support available to people in society is so important and, and we're not there yet. And that's something that I've been doing um, as an executive director for the organization that I work for. I'm like, listen, we need supports in community. We need well-resourced communities that support people in active addiction, that support people with mental health, that have housing, supportive housing, you know, um, if we want to make changes. Just throwing people in jail, that, that's not going to cut it because people have to be released. And if they don't have those supports when they're released, they'll end up in the exact same place that they were. So, you know, I just think full circle is possible and recovery is possible too. And and you're a, a testimony to that. Nicole, thank you so much for, for coming on and, and talking to me. Is there anything I've not asked you that you think it's important to mention? Because I've drawn from you such an important part of your life. Is there anything that we've not talked about that you think is important for people to know about you or about the work that you do today? Not so much about me, because, you know, the thing is, and, and I've mentioned this and it's true, like I'm coming from a place of privilege, right? I, I didn't grow up in survival mode. I had a family that loved me. And despite the fact that my dad was involved in drugs and that sort of thing, like I grew up around love. And um, I think that um, the idea that we're all born with the same life chances is it's flawed reasoning, you know, and um, I struggle every day to try to make people understand um, that it can happen to anybody. But that's because I'm trying to uh, put together that link for people, you know, um, everybody is worthy of recovery. You know, and um, I think that um, that stigma that that everybody continues to carry carry in in society, and and I mean a large portion of society, you know, they they would like to just dismiss people that um, have addiction and mental health problems. But the problem is, is that it just perpetuates it and perpetuates generational trauma. And so, you know, I would just like to make a shift in the way that people think about people that have addiction and mental health issues. 
And, and I suppose that's important, isn't it? That narrative change. And it's interesting that you say, you know, you didn't come from such a traumatic childhood, which is the cause of why you become addicted to drugs, because it's all you knew and poverty, etc. And I suppose that just lends itself to one other question, which is something we hear very often, and you've talked about quite extensively. And that is the, the relationship that you were in, or some of the relationships you were in, either with your father or with the abusive husband. And there is often a lot said around why women end up getting involved in criminality, drugs, um, prison. It's because there's always a man behind that, what drives that woman into, you know, not really decisions of their own. A huge proportion of women in prison are there as drug mules or something. Would you say that you were caught up in that or were you making decisions for yourself? I suppose the question is, I'm trying to get at, without it sounding unfair to those that have experienced it, was there a man behind what you did, didn't do, and end up, or not? I think that people um, do the best they can with the options that they are given, regardless of um, you know how you're you're brought up, regardless of where you are in life. Um, you know, you are presented with options, right? Um, let's say you grow up in a family that can afford for you to go to university. So you go to university and that's, that's how your life goes. Let's say you're brought up in a family, um, of gang members that, um, you know, agree with putting children out to prostitute themselves or to drug deal or to do break and enters. Those are the options that you are given. You know, um, when you are in an abusive relationship or, um, you know, you are surrounded by people that behave in a certain way, those are the options that you are given. So, you know, I don't want to blame him for me dealing drugs because that's not it at all. I mean, I could have done something else. I don't know. That's just one of the options that I was given. And um, drug addiction is about ways and means to use and find drugs. And drug dealing is the fastest way to find ways and means to find, use drugs. So, you know, um, since I knew so many people that were involved in that lifestyle, it just was a no-brainer. And, you know, um, I'm not trying to brag or whatever, but I was better at it than him. And so it just it just seemed to be like a natural progression. That was the option that was available to me. I couldn't go to work, you know, I couldn't... I, I couldn't even get down to social assistance on time to try to get welfare. Like, it, it, you know, it, it was a mess. And so it fell in my lap and that was the option that was available. And so that's the option that I took. I wasn't forced to do it. You know, um, I'm accountable for my behavior. I have different. And, and just, just, just to go out on, on, just to go out on a real positive. What makes you happy today? Because it sounds like you've been through so many years of drug addiction, brutality, violence, traumas. What makes you happy today, Nicole? You know, my, my relationship with my kids that makes me really happy today. Um, the fact that I have been able to take everything that I went through and turn it into um, something positive in respect to my career as an executive director that supports women that might be criminalized or that are involved with the justice system and to do things um, that can help them have different choices and options. And, and that's, you know, that's everything to me. Like my heart is full that um, that's where my life is right now. And I honestly feel like I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. Thank you, Nicole, for coming on Second Chance Podcast. Thank you very much. 
Thanks for tuning in to the Second Chance podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. You can find the video of this interview on our YouTube channel at Second Chance Podcast, where you can also subscribe to be notified of new episodes. Please share our episodes with your friends, family and colleagues and follow us on YouTube and your preferred podcast platform for updates of new episodes. Now your feedback is crucial to the growth of our podcast. I'm always saying it and I'm saying it again. Please rate and review our episodes and let us know your thoughts in the comments section. This podcast was brought to you by Second Chance Media Productions. Audio Avalanche handles audio editing. J-Row Productions created the original soundtrack. Studio Minerva designed the eye-catching cover. Social media marketing agency Scribble manages and creates our social media content. If you haven't already, please follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook and LinkedIn. Just look for Second Chance Podcast with me, Raphael Rowe. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.